And what you see in the Old Testament is, is its expression as much as you do its teaching. You find God's dealing, because much of the Old Testament is a, his, is a history book. It records how God dealt with his people, how he progressively revealed himself throughout time to his people, how he developed his people and carried out his plan, and how he specifically dealt with different individuals in his love and his mercy and his grace, sometimes in his holiness and justice and judgment. We learn about the character of God as we observe it in the lives of people. And here in Genesis 14, we find an expression of both of God's mercy and of God's grace. We see God's mercy expressed towards Lot in the first part of this chapter, and we see God's grace for Abram, especially in the second part of this chapter. And I'm not sure how far we'll go yet this morning, because I understand the ladies had such a wonderful time. They're not going to stay awake very long this morning. So we'll, um, I looked at this message and wondered how I could cut it short for their sakes, but we'll see where the Lord leads this morning. Genesis chapter 14 begins on the note of, of uh, war in the land. Let's just read the first few verses to catch that note. Verse 1 says, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Eliezer, Tritaliomer, king of Elam, and Tadal, king of nations, that they made war with Barah, the king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemember, Meber, excuse me, king of Zebulim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. You know, I have to learn to practice reading these out loud because when you read them, when you study, you don't really try to pronounce them. Whew. Aren't you glad I didn't ask one of you to read this for scripture reading this morning? Well, we find war in the land. These kings are at war, and the, really the, 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 the key point in this is that Lot gets caught up in this war and taken captive. If you jump down here to verse 12, they, we find... Um, they also took Lot, Abram's brother, who, brother's son, excuse me, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. And so um, in between, it gives us the details of the campaign. If you want to read that passage here in church, you're welcome to. I'll let you come up front and read all those names. But you can catch the detail. There was war in the land, and because Lot had pitched his tent near Sodom, he got caught up in this war and taken captive. And, and well, along with the people of Sodom. And what comes next is an expression of God's mercy towards Lot because Abram hears of it. Let's continue on here in verse 13. It says, Then one who escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Anur, and they were allies with Abram. And when, Now when Abram heard that his his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot, his goods, as well as the women and the people. So we find this, this, this old patriarch Abram sitting in his tent and someone comes and tells him and he says that Lot's in trouble. His brother's son, in reality, his nephew, is in trouble. I'm getting waved at up here. Pause. Hit the pause button. Where was I? Abram. Abram hears and I notice the immediate response. You know, Abram didn't think, oh, you know what, that 
nephew of mine, he moved over there. He had it coming. And, you know, Abram think, well, I'll pray about it for a week or two or three or four, and I'll think about what I should do. There was an immediate response here, and I think that, that's something to note. And Abram immediately responded to the need of his nephew, whether he deserved it or not. And he gathered his, his, his men, and you look at how many servants he was able to take with him, indicates how much God had enriched Abram. He was a wealthy man and had, had been successful at his business, had many servants, and he immediately took out in his campaign, and we see Abram not hesitating. And it's really a, a good lesson for us, isn't it, when it comes to meeting needs, isn't it? Sometimes God drops something in front of us, and we don't always see it. And if we see it, we don't really want to respond to it. We find a lot of excuses and reasons why I'm just too busy, I'm not available, I, I can't do it, I'm not up to it. And I am impressed here that Abram didn't even think about, well, tell me how many soldiers there are. How many weapons do they have? How fortified are they? And you look at the number, though it seems like a lot of servants, it seems like a small army, doesn't it? To go up and face all these kings that had already won this campaign and expect to come out victorious. But Abram must have believed that God would lead him to do this, and, and God in his power protected Abram, gave him the victory against all odds, which means that when we have those objections in our lives that keep us from serving as God leads us, as God presents opportunities and needs before us, that we have to trust him. And he can overcome. We are overcomers in him. Greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. We have to trust those details to him, don't we? The details that often cause us to fret and fear and hesitate when it comes to stepping out for Christ. Well, Abram stepped out and Lot was rescued. And what's really something we might consider when you consider Lot, because you know, we, we're just at the beginning of Lot's story, and yet we see, as we progress in Lot's story, we see where he ended up in his compromise with the world. Peter tells us that he vexed his righteous soul when he lived amongst them. It wasn't the place for a believer to be, a believer to live. And that's a good lesson for us as well, because I think, I think way too often the church... Christians try to cozy up to the world and think they can survive, by the way. That's a lesson of Lot, and maybe a lesson for another day. We think that we can, in our grace and our liberty and our freedom, that we can kind of cozy up to the world and still be okay as a Christian. And, uh, and, and Lot, didn't th Lot thought he had it under control. But Peter says, according to New Testament, God inspired Peter to remind us that Lot did vex his soul when he cozied up to the world. And so with that in mind, you think, why did God rescue him? This time, Well, we know there's going to a greater rescue coming because we kind of know the rest of the story. But it's an expression of God's mercy, isn't it? God, in, God's mercy is, is not giving someone what they deserve. That's, that's how we describe mercy. It's bigger than that and greater than that. But it's God not giving us what we deserve. And that's important for us to come to grips with because we, it takes a long time in our life sometimes to come to that point where we realize that we really have nothing to offer God but that he saves us anyway, he uses us anyway, he forgives us anyway, he restores us anyway, he cleanses us anyway. When we come to him, ask his children in, in repentant confession, he forgives and he cleanses. And, he, and even when we don't, he may act in mercy. We see nothing in this passage of any change in the attitude of Lot. God didn't think, okay, Lot's getting the message, he's living too close to the world, he's going through these problems because of where he's lived, and maybe now he's going to have a change of heart. Well, we don't see that here. I didn't say it didn't happen, but we don't see it here. God doesn't describe it here. But we do see described here is God's compassion, his mercy. 
Sometimes those words are used interchangeably. In the Old Testament. And according to Lamentations chapter 3, it's because of God's mercy we're not consumed. That's a fact of life. We have to realize. You know, we never, ever, ever are going to get to the place where we deserve God's mercy. Now, we may enjoy it when we, are, when we confess and repent and turn back to God. But God is a God of mercy. And that mercy we know is balanced with judgment, and sometimes it comes to the point, just as it did on the ark, where God shut the door and it's time for judgment. But up until that point, God, God is a God of mercy, and it's, because, and it's because of that mercy we're not consumed. We are so reliant upon the love of God that was ultimately expressed on the cross, was it, was it not? But Lamentations go on and said, instead, his, his, his compassions fail not. Wonderful, isn't it? His compassion, his mercy, his grace, his kindness. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 103 for a moment. Psalm 103. And, you know, one of my favorite passages, if you haven't figured that out by now, on the mercy of God. Psalm 103. And let's just go ahead and read a few verses here together. We think about God's mercy towards us. Because all of us, are dependent upon God's mercy. We're told in Hebrews to come before the throne of grace to find mercy because we all sin against God. We've all failed. We all fall short. We have our shortcomings. And yet God, in his mercy, loves us anyway, uses us anyway, and, and, and restores us when we come to him. Verse 1 says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and don't forget his benefits who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to his, our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed his transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fears him. And we can go on and on through this chapter. You get the message. God's mercy and loving kindness, mercy and grace, is extended to us undeservedly. There's nothing, I think it's William Newell who has to this point, there's nothing in man that, that causes God to express his mercy and grace. He does so because he loves us. And he has forgiven us. And when we, and we come to him in salvation, we are forgiven. When we come to him as his children in our relationship, in confession, he, he forgives, restores, and cleanses. We have to accept that. God doesn't ask us to do penance doesn't ask us to carry that guilt for months to come, that we may suffer the consequence of our actions. That is unavoidable because that's another fixed principle in the scriptures. We reap what we sow. But in our relationship, God forgives. He restores. He cleanses. You know, I just came across this when I was looking through this passage. You had to, maybe you asked the question why God uses the term east from the west rather than north from the south. And when you think about it, if you start heading west you'll never come to the end of your journey. If you start heading north, you're going to eventually be heading south. Now, I'm kind of a physics kind of guy, and I think, how could that be possible? But that's how it is, isn't it? 
That's why God didn't use as far as the north is from the south, because there's an end to that journey. But east is from the west. When you head west, you'll never find east. That's how far he's removed our sins. God loves and forgives, and we so often in our lives carry around guilt and burdens because we're afraid God hasn't forgiven us. We don't deserve it, you know, and I'm such a, as we become aware of our sinfulness, and yet we realize that God's mercy is from everlasting to everlasting in our lives. See, God rescued Lot anyway. He didn't deserve it. He may have deserved discipline. He may have deserved God ignoring him, but God extended his mercy, sent Abram, to rescue him from certain abuse, slavery, maybe even death. You know, Psalm 136 is another psalm that talks about God's mercy, repeats in every verse, for his mercy endures forever. When you leave that phrase out and read the passage, it's the passage about the goodness of God, but every verse reminds us his mercy endures forever, and God wants us to understand his mercy. You know, we celebrate this week the uh, triumphal entry, I like to call it the not-so-triumphal entry. Not that God couldn't have been triumphant if he chose to at that time, but he allowed himself to be subjected to the rejectors, the persecutors, and those who hung him on the cross. And though many of those, some say many of those who hailed him and the waving of the palm leaves were crying, crucify him, crucify him, some hours later. But then what did he do? He extended his mercy. He went to the cross for them and for you and I because his mercy is from everlasting. As we go back to Genesis 14, in our account then, we turned from Lot to Abram, and we find here that he meets two kings on, on his, after his victory. Verse 17 says, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him. And then, in verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the Most High God. And so these two kings come out to meet him. One, the king of a wicked city, we assume a wicked king, in, because he was king over Sodom, and the other, the high priest of God. Verse 10 gives us what Melchizedek had to say. He said, he blessed him, Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram, the God of God Most High, Possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. And so he meets these two kings, and we kind of understand here from the text and context that Barah was the king of Sodom, a wicked king and of a wicked city. But who is this Melchizedek that all of a sudden walks onto the pages of Scripture and without any description, any explanation, other than fact that he was the king of Salem, which is identified in the scriptures as Jerusalem. He is the, he was a priest of God. He must have been the, the high priest. This is, well, this is before the Aaronic priesthood, before the, all the Mosaic temple and all, uh, excuse, tabernacle and all those things. But he was identified as a priest of God, and he recognized God most high. What a wonderful title. I think Abram mentions it as well, that title, God most high, recognizes almighty God. I think I just read a verse recently that said, uh, that mentions the fact, I think Psalm 136, 37, 38, somewhere in there, that mentions that though God is on high, he ministers to the lowly. Isn't that a wonderful thing? He's on high. 
He's an almighty God who transcends creation, and that's a wonderful God to have for us. And so Melchizedek, that's all we know of him. He's king of Salem, Jerusalem, apparently, and he was the priest of the Most High God, and he comes out to meet him. And it's all we really know about him is what's recorded here. He's mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. In Psalm 110.4, he's mentioned as a type of Christ, where he says, you're a priest forever, prophesied of Christ. He's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that's mentioned in chapter 7. So let's go ahead and understand this Melchizedek maybe a little bit more, or see what the Bible says about him, at least, in Hebrews chapter 7. In Hebrews chapter 7, it begins with this idea that verse 1, that Melchizedek, king of Salem, he was priest of the Most High God. He met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. Abraham gave him a tithe in verse 2, and, and his name was translated first king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. And then he says he was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. And so we find here the details regarding, a little few details regarding Melchizedek. His name means righteousness, and he's from Salem, which means peace. And what you find here in the book of Hebrews, and you've got to keep this in mind, the book we're reading, this is a book in which the writer is trying to convince the Jews that Jesus was legitimate, the legitimate Messiah, that the Old Testament law has been fulfilled in Christ. What that means is that the, the Ten Commandments which brought condemnation upon mankind, because none of us can keep the law. When we, when we view the Ten Commandments and the laws of God, we find out we're sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3, te 3 tells us that, that that's the purpose of the law, that every mouth might be stopped and that the whole world might become guilty before God. And so Jesus Christ fulfilled that when he died for your sins and mine. He took the penalty the law demanded. And that's why we say the law was fulfilled in Christ. He paid its penalty for us so that we no longer are, are, have to, are condemned, but instead we, stand, we find our salvation in Christ. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, the Bible tells us. And so the writer of Hebrews is trying to convince the Hebrews that this new covenant Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, this new life we have in Christ is legitimate. And so he goes back to this, this argument, which the writer chooses to use in regards to Melchizedek being a type of Old Testament example of Christ. And that's why the ideas of his name being righteousness, Salem being peace, is really a typical of Christ, isn't it? It's, it's, it becomes a beautiful picture of Christ. And then he mentions the fact of his beginning and ending. He had no beginning and ending and no genealogy. Now, we don't know if this actually means that he was never born. It's, I think what it refers to, most scholars believe it refers to the fact that back in the only place he's mentioned, in Genesis 14, that no genealogies are mentioned. And Genesis is a book of families, of genealogies. Everyone you read about, their, their, their genealogy is mentioned, their, where they're from and their beginnings and so on, and parents and, you know, Melchizedek, son of, should have been the normal terminology. But nothing is mentioned about where, who, who he is, where he's from, what family he's from. And, and so here the writer of Hebrews used that to illustrate Christ, the eternality of Christ, and the fact that he has an everlasting priesthood. Look at verse 24, if you jump down here. It says to us, but he, that's Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. And so 
So the Bible uses Melchizedek as an example of that. And the whole point of this is that because Christ was, according to verse 17, he says, for he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's a quote from Psalm 110.4. And what the writer is saying that the great high priest, the one who provided redemption for us. Because remember, in the Old Testament law, people brought their sacrifices to the high priest to assist them in offering these sacrifices for the covering of sins. But now we have a great high priest, the last high priest, Jesus himself, but he is not after the Levitical order. He, Melchizedek predates the Aaronic priesthood, predates the Mosaic law, and so what the writer of Hebrews is saying is salvation has been provided apart from the law, apart from the Ten Commandments, apart from keeping all the ordinance and holy days, because Jesus is after a different order. He has an eternal priesthood. He goes on forever. If you jump over to chapter 9, we find that comparison mentioned. Notice here, in regards to the, the old covenant, the Mosaic Covenant compared to the new covenant in Christ. Verse 6 says, Now when these things had thus been prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tackle, performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year. That was a day of atonement. He went once a year, not without bread, blood, excuse me, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all, God's presence was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. In other words, that first tabernacle was inadequate. Verse 9 says, instead it was symbolic for the present time, Jesus' time, in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regards to the conscience. And this chapter points out the fact that the Old Testament sacrifices didn't clean the conscience, didn't take guilt away. It simply covered sins for the time being. Verse 11 says, But Christ came as a high priest of good things to come, with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, nor with the blood of, bull, of, of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption, and so on. Chapter 10, verse 4 says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Now, this, chap this chapter not only sets that argument for the Hebrew believers and for you and I for all time since the Bible was written, but also reminds us of the issue in salvation. The issue in salvation is nothing, has nothing to do with you and I and our good works and our faithfulness. It has everything to do with the payment for sin that must be made, the one and final payment that would take away the guilt of the sinner because the price has been paid once and for all and forever. That is the issue in salvation. Jesus was that propitiatory sacrifice on the cross. Verse 10 says, chapter 10 says, by that, by that will, referring to the Second Testament contract, covenant, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Verse 12 says, but this man, after he, won, off, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. The emphasis upon the one is, is in direct contrast to the many of the Old Testament tabernacle. Jesus completed this once and for all. And that's why going back to Hebrews 7, that's why Melchizedek is used here as that example. 
that Jesus is identified, was prophesied to be of that eternal order of priests outside of the Mosaic law because salvation does not come through keeping the law. Salvation comes through Christ alone. Verse 25 of chapter 7 says this, Therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives. He has no beginning and no end. He will make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. Jesus didn't pay for our sins, he paid for, excuse me, he paid for his sins, he paid for ours. So that's the argument. That's how Melchizedek is used. I know I went over this in somewhat of a hurry this morning, a short order. But that's Melchizedek. That's as much as we know about him. He's used here as an example of Jesus Christ, as a type of Christ, primarily because he is the high priest of God. He's called in the Old Testament. He predates Christ, and Christ is after his order, and he has an eternal priesthood, neither beginning nor ending. Let's go back to Genesis 14. I hope that wasn't too confusing. Sometimes you read Hebrews, you might think, who in, who in the world is Melchizedek? Well, join the club, because most scholars say the same thing. But that's all we know about him. And yet he was, no doubt, appointed by God to be high priest of the world at that time. In fact, Abraham gave him tithes, and there was one even greater than Abraham as part of that argument. What you wonder about Melchizedek in verse 18 is how much did he know about the future? He brought up bread and wine. Now what does that remind you of? The Lord's table. Like brings, so it brings the, brings the question, did he know? Did he know? How much did he know? Well, I don't have the answer for that. I'm just going to raise a question that there is no answer. But it makes you wonder how much did he know about the coming Savior and his death, burial, and resurrection. Then he declared in verse 19 the blessing on Abram. And he blessed the God who had delivered Abram. And that's what a high priest does, isn't it? In service towards God, he blessed Abram. And a high priest is intended, the priests were intended, to serve others by representing them before God, bringing them before God. And this interesting verse in Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6 says, as continuous says this, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And we know the Bible teaches that we have a priesthood. And what we see in Melchizedek here is a willingness to not only glorify God and uplift God, but to minister to others. That's the work of a priest. And maybe that's what Abraham did, was it not, when he quickly responded to the need of his nephew. So like Christ, Melchizedek, and like Melchizedek, we glorify God when we serve one another. Well, then he comes to the next king. His response in verse 21 says this, Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap. 
and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with, went with me, Amor, Eshcol, Mamre, let them take their portions. So Abram refuses to take any of the spoils. He had a legal right to them. In a campaign of war, it was expected he would take the spoils. Barah simply said, give me the people, you can have the stuff. But Abram, Abram gave an explanation. He says, no, I'm not going to because I had made a promise, a commitment to God, that I wasn't going to take nothing from you. So somewhere in the course of this time, God had revealed to Abraham, and Abraham had decided in his convictions that he was going to take nothing from this ungodly king, from this ungodly city. And he said why. He tells us why here, because, because I'm not going to allow you to say I've made Abram rich. Abram apparently did not want to be, be under the thumb of Barah. He did not want to be subject to Barah, did not want to be indebted to Barah. Maybe he did not want to associate with this ungodly king. And while Abraham gave to Melchizedek a tithe, he would take nothing from Barah. And Wiersbe says this in regards to this discussion, quote, why would it have been wrong for Abraham to take the spoils? After all, didn't he risk his life and the lives of his retainers to defeat the invading kings and rescue the prisoners? Legally, Abraham every claim to the spoils, but morally they were out of bounds. Many things in this world are legal as far as the courts are concerned, but morally wrong as far as God's people are concerned. And so Abraham had some moral conviction about the taking the spoils from this ungodly city. And we may not fully understand why he had that conviction, but we appreciate the fact that he had a conviction. And it wasn't a conviction that was based on convenience. He didn't try to justify taking all those riches. And there's no doubt there was lots of riches to be had. And it might have been a temptation to take them. And he might have, been, might have tried to justify taking those riches and compromising his convictions. He could have used them for the purposes of God or for the benefits of the needy. We can give it to the poor. Or I like this one. Doesn't God want me to be happy? There's a lot of reasons we can justify, but whatever the conviction was that he had established based on his relationship with God, he wasn't going to budge. He had a conviction and he kept it. What a novelty you find in the world today. Someone who has some biblical convictions and actually lives by them and keeps them before the world. You see, God doesn't need the world's riches to supply his children. Instead, he promises a supply out of his riches. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Philippians 4.19, that verse we like to claim, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. It is to him we look. It is to him we're obligated. It's to him we depend. And Abram did not want that relationship with Barah, who's actually a type of the world. And we're to look to the Lord rather than the world for our sustenance. That's why we live and operate our finances in a godly way for the glory of God because we're dependent on him, we're subject to him, and we daily look to him for all things in life. Remember Acts 17, 28, for in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Well, some people would say that this was a test of faith for Abram. He had just won a great victory, and now he has this critical decision in regards to his convictions. And, and we, we, we recognize the fact that sometimes the valley comes after the mountaintop. And our faith often loses focus after a great victory. 
Because faith requires focus, doesn't it? It requires a focus upon God, upon his word. The Bible must anchor our faith and guide our attitudes and direct our steps. It must be our source of wisdom and strength. And then we also willfully focus in dependent submission to God and his word in our lives. It's a focus. The Christian life just doesn't happen when you get out of bed. It happens because we expose our mind to the word of God and we, and we willfully desire, Lord, what you have me to do today and guide me today. And throughout the day, we, we enjoy that relationship of praying without ceasing and carrying on an ongoing conversation with our Heavenly Father throughout the day. Lord, help me in this. Keep me from that. Direct me in this. What should I do here? And so on. I hope those things are on the mental, on the mental lips of your mind as you go through the day. And that's because that is the attitude of faith. It is deliberate, it is willful, and it is based upon the objective truth of God and his word as he establishes his teachings and convictions in our heart. And sometimes after victory, we lose that focus, don't we? And the valley comes. And yesterday's victory becomes all of a sudden today's defeats, doesn't it? Because we look to ourselves rather than to the Lord. Well, we be many believe here that God's sovereignty intervened to prepare Adam, or excuse me, Abram. Whew, Abram, though, I didn't get much sleep last night for this moment because he also sent Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was that believer who walked into your life at a, at a point of crisis and said, bless God most high. And he reminds him of where his victory came from. And God in his sovereignty sent this person into his life at the precise moment that maybe Abraham Abram, at this time, needed it in order to stand by his convictions before Barah and the world that was watching. That's God's grace. That's God's concern for his children. You see, sometimes God prepares us ahead of time for crisis in our lives. He does that. He equips the saints for the work of the ministry. He teaches us his wisdom. So He guides us in the way that we should go. And sometimes he intervenes. At the precise moment. Sometimes it's at the moment of crisis. Sometimes it's after a failure. When God steps into our lives and brings us conviction. Psalm 103 verse 9 reminded us that God won't, doesn't won't always strive with us. Interesting term. 